Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Israel Studies. I'm Yaakov Yadgar, the host of the channel. Today, we will be talking to Professor Yaakov Rabkin about his new book, What is Modern Israel? Rabkin, a professor of history at the University of Montreal, discusses in this book some of the most fundamental issues pertaining to the history and sociopolitics of Israel. He does not shy away from dealing with some of the most sensitive and even controversial issues, such as the Christian roots of Zionist ideology, the commemoration and political uses of the Holocaust in Israel, and the problematic stance of Zionist ideology towards Jewish traditions. Professor Rapkin, welcome to the show. Thank you. I, I was wondering if you could uh, begin by telling us uh, a little bit about the background of writing this book. You haven't always dealt with Israel in your research, have you? Indeed. Uh, it's uh, the second book I wrote uh, about Zionism in Israel. My previous book, uh, which in English is called A a Threat from Within, A Century of Jewish Opposition to Zionism, came out in French first. I wrote both of them in French, and this one also uh, is translated into English. So that book uh, got around the world, including Japan, and in Japan, It uh, was considered one of the best books of the year, and I was asked by the Japanese publisher to write a book about modern Israel for young Japanese readers. Uh This is the background of the book. I uh, wrote it essentially, well, I wrote it in French, but I wrote it for Japanese uh, readership. But once I wrote it in French, it came out in French, Russian, English, and so on. Oh, fascinating. Uh, well, you open the book with, maybe it's anecdotal, but you open it with uh, the metaphor of uh, St. Petersburg as maybe alluding to uh, your position towards your subject of study. Can you elaborate a little bit about this for people who haven't read the book? What is the story of St. Petersburg and why would you present it uh, in the introduction to a book about Israel? Uh, well, actually, uh, it was done, uh, the comparison between St. Petersburg and the, and the establishment of Israel was done by Professor Harshab, and I'm yes. quoting him. Uh, uh, but I found that comparison quite compelling because I was born and I grew up in, in Leningrad, which is now St. Petersburg. Uh, St. Petersburg is a very artificial city. It was built in a very un- inhospitable environment, uh, in early 18th century mm-hmm. by uh, essentially the imperial will of uh, Peter the Great. And uh, many writers uh, who lived in St. Petersburg and resented it foresaw that it would be one day destroyed by, by the sea, that it will be inundated and so on. And that's why I think Hashav uh, uh, made the comparison, but he also made another comparison. Mm-hmm. Uh, between the human cost of building it. Uh, some people say that St. Petersburg is built on the bones of thousands of peasants who are mobilized to do the work. 
Um, and uh, Harshav actually compares it with uh, the uh, uh, victims and of uh, the whole Zionist project, that both on the side of the Zionists themselves and the local population. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I think one of the more surprising uh, uh, elements you discuss in your book, surprising for people who have uh, maybe just studied uh, the mainstream Zionist historical narrative, has to do with the Christian roots of this ideology. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, many people uh, commemorate nowadays, the, uh, this year, I'm sorry, the Balfour Declaration. It's the centennial for the Balfour Declaration. And you also note uh, that Balfour himself and the roots from which he uh, uh, emerges and the, the declaration emerges are not necessarily wholly Jewish in their uh, makeup. Well, indeed, uh, uh, there are several books that have been written about the Christian roots of Zionism. Well, the idea of creating a state for the Hebrews, as they used to say in the 19th century, uh, is an idea that was uh, formulated, articulated, and promoted essentially by uh, English-speaking Protestant Christians, evangelicals, uh, who consider that uh, a Jewish state, a return of the Jews, of the Hebrews, to the Holy Land, Will, would speed uh, the second coming of Christ. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to the 17th century. There are important intellectuals like Joseph Priestley in Britain in the 18th century, uh, Lord Shaftesbury in 19th century Britain. So there's a whole background of tremendous attention to the Holy Land. In fact, I think it was Lloyd George, uh, Prime Minister of Britain, who said that he knows the geography of uh, Palestine better than he knows geography of the of Great Britain. Uh, there was a very and still is a very strong connection between these Protestant groups, and I don't mean all the Protestants, some Protestant groups, and uh, and uh, the idea of ingathering of Hebrews into the Holy Land for the purpose of the second coming of Christ, and indeed uh, uh, the. Uh, the scenario is not particularly uh, pro-Jewish, I would say, because the idea is to gather them and then there will be a second coming of Christ and uh, the Jews gathered in the Holy Land would have a choice of recognizing Jesus as Messiah or perishing. Uh, as uh, I think Gershon Gorenberg, uh, uh, an Israeli writer, once put it, it's a play in five acts and we disappear in the fourth one. Yes, I think it also involves uh, a different or a renewed reading of the meaning of Jewish identity. Uh, to paraphrase uh, what you say in the book, uh, this is a perspective that sees Jews by what they are, not necessarily but what they do or what do they believe or what, do we ob- what they observe. Uh, yes, uh, I think uh, everyone could see that, uh, that in today's uh, Jewish world, and I'm talking about mainstream Jewish communities, uh, with the exception perhaps of most Haredi or ultra-Orthodox groups, um, uh, the connection with the State of Israel, with the Zionist project, with blessings for the state and the Israeli soldiers, have taken center place in their religious uh, life. 
if you go to uh, in, to many synagogues, uh, which are kind of modern, maybe conservative or modern Orthodox, uh, you would see that there is a rather sort of attitude towards traditional prayer is rather indifferent. But when it comes to the blessing for the state of Israel, everyone stands up and chanting, and there's a lot of emotion. So I think today, for many Jews, I won't say most Jews, but for many Jews, uh, identification with the state of Israel has replaced uh, traditional Jewish commitment. And this indeed is one of the reasons that um, uh, the rabbis and most Jewish intellectuals at the turn of the 20th century rejected Zionism because they foresaw that that's precisely what would happen. Would you agree that what you present in your book is now your Jewish critique of Israel? You would take a more, if in your previous book you took, you've taken a more, uh, uh, how would I say, uh, an overview take on uh, a century of Jewish opposition to Zionism, this book seems to be feeding on your own uh, Jewish commitments, which translate into critique of Zionism. That may be right. Uh, I still, uh, the book has over 500 references, and essentially it's a book written for people who want to learn more about uh, the history of Zionism and contemporary Israel. Um, indeed, uh, some of the uh, chapters are informed by this Jewish critique of Zionism, because having worked on the subject for over 15 years, I think some of it may have percolated. And uh, I think I think that uh, the book is not written with a political angle, as far as I can tell, but it does try to distance itself from the dominant Zionist narrative. I see. And I think in this regard, one of the insights that you provide in the book, uh, an insight which tends to be missing, I think, from much of the conversation on Israel, has to do with the Russian roots of uh, the Zionist project as a whole and Israel as the culmination of this project. In other words, one of the ways you suggest uh, or, uh, we should view Israel is as a product of Russians of the turn of, of, the, uh, of the 10th of the uh, 20th century. Can you elaborate a little bit on this? Uh, right. Uh, I would gladly do so because several uh, readers uh, noticed that this Russian dimension is something that they had not been aware of. And I'm grateful to you for bringing it up. Uh, the Russian dimension is essential because we associate uh, the Zionist project with Herzl and with a group of German-speaking intellectuals in Vienna and but in fact, they were generals without an army. The army, that is the foot soldiers of Zionism, came practically all from the former Russian Empire. And when I mean Russian Empire, it's, it included in Poland and the Baltic states and so on. Uh, and if you look at uh, their particular predicament at the turn of the 20th century, unlike uh, Jews in Western Europe and Central Europe, they had not been emancipated. They did not enjoy civil equality. And, uh, but they had already been largely secularized, and uh, the Askala, the Jewish Enlightenment, had affected them by then. And they became extremely sensitive to the Zionist message. 
So the first settlers, as you well know, uh, came from the Russian Empire. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, there has not been one prime minister of Israel who had not been born within the Russian Empire or his parents uh, coming from the Russian Empire. And, of course, there's many, many others. They change their names. They Hebraize their names. So it's hard to tell uh, that it's Hakrabin, you know, is, uh, is, is of Russian origin, or Shimon Peres, and so on. Uh, but uh, and of course, ben, David Ben Gurion. Um, so we are talking about a very important dimension, and in fact, a con- confirmation of that is the fact that when Soviet or former Soviet Jews arrived in Israel en masse in early nineties. Very fast, they adjusted to the system. They became a political force. Many of them today play important roles in uh, contemporary Israel, unlike immigrants from Yemen or from Morocco who, who didn't adjust so easily because, indeed, the Zionist project, uh, sort of the um, incarnated Zionist project is essentially a Russian product. And that's why uh, it's so natural for those who came from the former Soviet Union uh, to um, benefit from it and to find itself themselves uh, integrated in the system much better than practically any other immigrants wave. And what do you see the uh, incarnations of this Jewish uh, or of this Russian origins In contemporary Israeli culture, what would you be considering as an obviously Russian trait that we might overlook and just consider as uh, simply Israeli? Well, I think uh, uh, Russia and the former Soviet Union was the only place in the world where to be a Jew meant to belong to a Jewish nationality rather than a confession. You know, I, as I mentioned, I grew up in the Soviet Union and I belonged to the Jewish nationality, which means that it was an ethnic group, it was an ethnic identification, and it had nothing to do whatsoever with religion. That's, this is was very important for the entire Zionist project, is to identify Jews not as a confessional group, not as a group that somehow is related to Torah and commandments and all that, but rather as a ethnic or national group, just like Ukrainians, Lithuanians, and, and Poles, in the midst of whom uh, these early Zionists lived. So I think that the whole idea of uh, Zionist Jewish identity is essentially Russian, mm-hmm. even though, of course, it had been proposed by Herzl, a thoroughly assimilated Jew, who also... Uh, felt that he belonged ethnically to the Jewish people. But as we know, um, the confessional dimension of Jewish identity uh, practically plays no role unless it's politically manipulated. Uh, but uh, it's important to see that in no other country mm-hmm. Jews were considered a nationality. I see. You also make a connection between these Russian roots and uh, the preference of violence or The use of violence uh, right uh, no uh, it's very interesting because many of those early Zionists came from the background of the Russian revolutionary movement, uh, which was pretty violent because the Russian imperial government didn't allow expression of political opinion till 1905 
so in the late 19th century and early 20th century, terrorism played a very important role in Russian history, violence from revolutionary groups, and Jews were disproportionately represented uh, among those groups because they felt particularly frustrated in, uh, in their lives with the limitations of the Pale of Settlement and so on. Uh, so the, uh, this culture of political violence was exported with these people to Palestine. And there's something else which is very important. I think most uh, Zionist leaders came from small Jewish towns, from the shtetls. Uh, they had no experience or very little experience of big cities, international, cosmopolitan environment. I think the only one who came from from a cosmopolitan big city and he didn't quite make it in Jewish, in Zionist history was Vladimir Zabotinsky. Mm-hmm. He came from Odessa, but practically all the others came from small towns. And for them, uh, coexistence with non-Jews was something very alien. So they reproduced the same segregation that they were accustomed to in the Zionist project. And in fact, the word that was used, I think, quite early uh, uh, in Zionist history was afrada. Afrada meaning separate separation, separate development. And the institutions of Zionist institutions developed in total divorce from the uh, society that existed in Palestine at that time. And how would you judge uh, the way these Russian roots influence Jews who are not from Russia? You, me- you mentioned the fact that non-Russian Jews uh, who immigrated to uh, Israel have had uh, a much uh, tougher uh, um, uh, route in a sense. Uh, but there's also, as you, uh, as, as you say, there's, an, uh, th- there's a different horizon of meaning here. The, the way Judaism is understood is completely different than the way other communities understood it. How would you judge uh, the interaction between, between this Russian conception of the Jewish blood, I would say, and, uh, and, and other traditional understanding of Judaism? Well, I think that the, the, the idea of Jewish nationality, or as you put it, the Jewish blood, uh, is an idea that, of course, is present uh, in the Jewish tradition, but it is never a dominant factor, and the dominant factor traditionally was the observance of commandments and certain life uh, style that, you know, observing of Sabbath and the observing of holidays and so on, uh, and dietary restrictions and family restrictions and so on. Uh, so for Soviet Jews, all of these things were totally unknown when they came to it. Not only didn't observe them, they didn't know about them. So they, their only connection was the national connection. And that's why they became so well-adjusted. Now, for the others, uh, for, I think, you know, I, I used to read the Russian press in Israel uh, when I visited Israel. Um, I found it pretty racist. It was pretty racist not only with respect to Palestinian Arabs, but also to Arab Jews who came from uh, Morocco, Yemen, and other countries, because... These Russian Jews felt, and I think continue to feel, as the vanguard of European settlement in the Middle East, and they didn't want to have anything to do with uh, these retarded, uh, back, backward, 
uh, people from Arab countries. Uh, for them, uh, really, the the real Israel is a European settlement in the middle of the Middle East, rather than a country integrated in the environment in which it finds itself. Yes. So, what is the meaning of Jewish identity in contemporary Israel? What is the meaning of Israel being a Jewish state? Well, I, I'm, I'll have difficulty answering that question. Uh, and in a good Jewish habit of answering a question with a question, uh, what is a Jewish table? Is it a table produced by a Jew, used by a Jew, sold by a Jew, a table that has kosher food on it? We don't know what the Jewish table is. And that's, we don't know what the Jewish state is. Because Jewish state, for some people, it's a state where Jews constitute a demographic majority. For others, it should be a throne uh, for the coming of Messiah. Uh, that's for more, many religious Zionists. For the ultra-Orthodox, it means again something else. I think, as you know, Israeli society is very fragmented, and attitudes towards the state also uh, quite different. Uh, so I really have difficulty to answer your question. I see. And, uh, but but on, in the same light, how would you uh, describe the way Israeli Jews understand their Judaism? Well, again, Israeli Jews is a very diverse group, very fragmented group. So if you take, let's take from the ultra-Orthodox Haredi groups, and I begin with them not only because I wrote a book about their opposition to Zionism, but also because they are demographically the most dynamic group among Jews. Mm -hmm. uh, so for them, uh, a state is a state like any other state. Either some actually don't even recognize it. Those who recognize and take part in the political life uh, consider it an opportunity to, to get funds for, uh, for their schools, for, for their system, but essentially they don't want to integrate into Israeli society, the mainstream Israeli society. That's, that's one group. And for them, uh, the state is not particularly important. What is important is the land, holy land. Uh, for uh, if you go to the so-called secular majority, uh, I think for them, Jewish state means essentially a, a demographic majority of, of Jews in that state without any particular coloration of Judaism. In fact, many of them resent the fact that in many cities in Israel you don't have public transportation and Shabbat and so on. Uh, so for them, uh, they would they take it as a state uh, where they grew up. Many of them are fifth, sixth generation there. Uh, and they want it to be a society like any other Western society. I don't think they have any particular expectations. No, no, and then, of course, you know, as you, since you yourself taught at Barlang University, you know that there are religious Zionists who, for whom uh, the, uh, the Jewish state has a Jewish meaning. For them, it is, uh, it's a step towards uh, the arrival of Messiah, and that's preparing the arrival of Messiah as the, the blessing for the state of Israel, which I mentioned earlier very prudently states it's the beginning of the flowering of our redemption. So for them, it is uh, this Jewish state has a very strong meaning. And I think among all the groups that I've mentioned, uh, religious Zionists um, developed their thought around the Jewish state in a much more convincing way than any other groups that I've mentioned. Yes, and uh, you 
offer an interesting uh, play of words when you don't call this group national uh, religious Zionist, but rather national Judaism. Can you explain this? Well, because uh, I, the term is Nadati Lumi in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Lumi meaning religious, Lumi meaning national. <laughs> and that I translated it directly. And I think it makes a lot of sense because if you call it uh, national Judaism, that's exactly what it is because it combines elements of Jewish tradition with this Russian perception of, uh, of Jews as, an, as a nationality. So I think that, and that's why this group, the religious Zionists, they, they are really in between the secular majority and the ultra-Orthodox. Uh, so that's, I think, is a, uh, it's a key position for them. And, and they, as you well know, also are today considered the heirs of the Zionist pioneers because they, of the settlements, because of the expansion of Jewish settlement in territories that were taken in 1967. So uh, from all of these viewpoints, uh, the meaning of the Jewish state is perhaps the greater, greatest for uh, the, uh, those who adhere to national Judaism. I see. So um, your book handles some of the most controversial topics regarding uh, uh, at least this, the mainstream Zionist narrative. You tackle it from uh, different points of view. And I guess it won't be too uh, 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 smart even to say that the most controversial and the most sensitive topic you handle is the issue of the memorization of the Holocaust, the commemorization of the Holocaust and the political uses made of it uh, in Israel. Um, can you give us a sense of your argument uh, in a few words? Well, again, I'm not uh, the first one uh, to devote some attention to this topic. Uh, there are books written about uh, political uses of commemoration of the, of the Nazi genocide. And in fact, I call it Nazi genocide yes. rather than Holocaust because Holocaust, as you well know in Hebrew, means, in fact, something positive. It's, it's a sacrifice, it's a burnt sacrifice in the temple. I don't know why we should use it. It was the innovation of Elie Wiesel, but uh, I prefer the term Nazi genocide, which indeed it was. Uh, so the uh, uses of uh, genocide, of the memory of genocide, uh, are quite straightforward. Because uh, that uh, tragedy... Uh, in the middle of the 20th century could be interpreted in many different ways. The ways that West German society interpreted what happened uh, at the hands of their parents was that we have to build a democratic uh, multicultural society that does not discriminate against minorities in order to avoid such tragedy from happening again. For the Zionist leaders, and I think for the Zionist rank and file, it meant something very different. We were weak, we have to be strong. Uh, and uh, that lesson, in fact, has been engraved in the uh, education system uh, of Israel. Uh, you really have this whole apparatus to bring... Uh, young Israelis, including soldiers, to places of persecution and extermination of Jews in Europe and Poland in particular, uh, with the lesson that we have nowhere else to go, no one 
everyone hates us. The only place we have in the world is the state of Israel. And that's why it is important because everyone tried to kill us. And in that, indeed, that pretty much dovetails with a, a verse we say uh, during the Passover ceremony, if you remember. In every generation, there are people who come up to destroy us. But the second part, and God saves us from those evil people, somehow is omitted. So what today saves, according to the educational message that is received, uh, today what saves Jews from destruction uh, is the might of the Israeli Defense Forces. And, uh, and this is the lesson that has been internalized not only in Israel, but in quite a few Jewish communities in the world who enjoy all the benefits of multicultural society, who as Jews benefit from tolerance and uh, lack of discrimination. And at the same time, uh, they uh, believe that the only safe place for the Jews is the state of Israel. And that, I think, is a very important point that the, the particular people in Western uh, Jewish communities live in a kind of cognitive dissonance. On the one hand, they appreciate and they say so uh, the, the freedoms of the Western society, but at the same time they say, well, but the only safe place for the Jews is the state of Israel. So this, in a way, takes us back to the point which, with which you've started, the role of uh, Israel and its influence in uh, war jewelry. Um, can you uh, elaborate about this uh, a bit? What does it mean for Israel to be now, as you said in the beginning, the, uh, the core of many people's Jewish identity outside of Israel? I've just turned 72, uh, so I remember well uh, many of my friends during sabbaticals that I spent in Israel Uh, uh, worked in institutions, uh, one of the main goals of which was to instill the centrality of Israel in Jewish education in the diaspora. I, I knew them personally, many of them are still my friends. Uh, that has been largely carried out. I think the centrality of Israel has become main point of Jewish identities around the world, with the exception of ultra-Orthodox groups who are not affected that way practically. Uh, this centrality, what it means in practice, uh, and here we're getting perhaps to issues belonging more to diaspora, to Jews living in other countries rather than Israel, is that a Jew can be considered a good Jew if he supports Israel, all the while transgressing all the or commandments. Uh, in traditional Jewish life, if you transgress Jewish commandments, particularly publicly, uh, you're ostracized, you're really criticized, and you're reproached. You're certainly not considered a good Jew. And that's still the case with ultra-Orthodox communities. But in mainstream Jewish communities here uh, in North America that I observe, Uh, you can transgress all the commandments provided you support Israel and give a check to Israeli charities and so on. So, in fact, uh, we have a different system of values, and I'm not saying which is better, which is worse, but it's a new Judaism, a new Judaism that uh, has become largely a political identity, 
who support the most right-wing elements in Israel's political spectrum, and therefore you're a good Jew because you support the most extreme elements. Um, and uh, the rest of it, the traditional Jewish identity based on religious commandments uh, has become secondary or tertiary or has disappeared altogether because, you know, all these people who chant a uh, blessing for the state of Israel just recently, we are, uh, we are having this conversation uh, after major Jewish holidays. Uh, so these people would uh, drive on Yom Kippur to the synagogue, which is not done in Orthodox circles, um, uh, and then uh, they would sing and chant the blessing for the state of Israel as their expression of Jewish identity. But today, Judaism means many different things. Uh, in ultra-Orthodox world, it's pretty much standard Jewish traditional identity. But as we move away from that, uh, we see that it really has become a political identity shared, I would say, by very large number of Jews. I you know Stephen Cohen conducts all this service, so you should check his data. But I think a good majority of Jews uh, identify with the state of Israel much more than they identify with the obligation to eat kosher. Yes, and in a sense, this new understanding of uh, Jewish identity or of, uh, even of Judaism itself puts everything as dependent on the state. So the state maintains others' identities as Jewish or non-Jewish and so forth. You describe, you, you, you position yourself as a Jew vis-a-vis -vis the state. Well, I personally don't, but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, for many Jews, it, it's, um, you see, the, the interesting thing is that it's not the real state of Israel. It's not the real Israeli society that is the center of their identity. It's a virtual Israel. It's an Israel that they view from the windows of the Hilton Hotel. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an Israel that they visit on organized tours where they see the best things of Israel, which is wonderful. Uh, but they really don't know very much about Israel. You know, I'll, I'll just give you one example. It happened here in Montreal. Uh, we have uh, friends of various universities. It's charitable uh, contributions are collected from people who want to contribute, say, to Hebrew University. And, and among others is the friends of the uh, Ben-Gurion University in the Negev. That's the official name of the university. And so I wanted to, at a big banquet, uh, which was uh, attended by quite a few people, uh, fundraising, uh, I was seated to a uh, deputy chairman of that organization. Uh, and uh, uh, next to her, on the other side, sat, sat a visiting professor from that university. And she asked him, uh, where do you live? And he said a certain moshav, uh, where is this? He says, in the Negev. Oh, where is Negev? And that's the official name of the university. Yes. Yes. So uh, the, the level of ignorance is quite significant, and I think it's very productive because that's it's the best way to support Israel is to know a little bit, to know less about it. This would prevent uh, uh, dissonances where your other values may not sit so well with what uh, the state does. 
Right, right. Uh, and that's why, in a way, um, except specialists in Jewish history and Israeli, Israel studies, um, the level of understanding of Israeli society is not very good uh, among uh, Jewish communities in the world. Um, and that's why, personally, I found that when my previous book on Jewish opposition to Zionism was translated into Hebrew and in Israel and published, and I was interviewed on television and radio all over, it was much more interesting because people knew what they were talking about. And in fact, the subtitle they gave to the book uh, was A History of a Continuing tr Struggle. Mm -hmm. uh, for many people here, it's something very exotic. It, it's something passé, it doesn't belong to today's world. But people in Israel do know that uh, a significant part of Jewish population in Israel doesn't even relate to the idea of history. Yeah. I must say that I find uh, the Israeli continuous uh, interest in the opposition of basically a minority among Israeli Jews, well, Israeli by, uh, you know, by the citizenship, to, the, to Zionism tells us a lot about Israel itself, not necessarily about those who oppose it. The amount of energy, the, the fierceness of the discourse around them, around Neture Karta, for example, and Haida Haredi, who are famous for their public uh, opposition to the state, uh, is fascinating as a, as a window into Israeli identity. Yes, and in fact, into Israeli identities, because again, for... I think that for Russian Jews or for former Soviet Jews in Israel, uh, I don't think they're terribly interested. But I remember, and here I can tell you an anecdote that happened to me. I was, uh, if you know Jerusalem, I was traveling from one campus, uh, the Givat Ram campus, to interview one of the leaders of Neture Karta, mm -hmm. uh, the anti-Zionist anti movement uh, in, uh, in the Jewish world. And I took a cab, and there was a traffic jam. And I, at that time, I didn't have a portable telephone. So I asked the driver, who was clearly a, 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 from an Arab country. He was an Israeli, Jewish Israeli from an Arab country. Uh, so I asked him, could he call from his phone uh, and tell the person that I'll be late? He said, what's the name of the person? And I said, well, his name is Rabbi Moshe Hirsch. Oh, he says, the one from Arafat, you know, from, because he was a member of the Israeli government, of the Palestinian autonomous government. Mm -hmm. I said, yeah, that's the one. So I didn't know what to expect then. So he dials the number, and then the first thing he says, Kavod Arav, your honor the rabbi. Mm -hmm. yes. So he has this respect. At the same time, politically, I'm sure he doesn't agree with him. Mm -hmm. But there is a respect for Jewish tradition uh, among uh, particularly non-European Jews in Israel that I think um, uh, is a very important factor uh, in Israeli life. Well, Professor Rapkin, we've taken a lot of your time. Uh, can you tell us in closing a little bit about your current work? What are you working on now? Well, in fact, it's an outgrowth of what uh, we were been talking about because I'm talking about, I'm working now in a collective volume on demodernization. It should come out next year uh, in English. And uh, it deals with the, the trend that we are all observing around us, that many of the values of modernity have been 
uh, abandoned, uh, such as, for example, uh, the idea of a multicultural society, the idea of um, development uh, through industrialization, um, many ideas uh, and projects uh, have been abandoned. For example, another trend is that life expectancy, say, in the United States, is going down. Uh, so I uh, gathered uh, scholars from 11 countries. Uh, we had a conference a year and a half ago. Uh, try to understand what demodernization is. And the way it's connected with, uh, with what we've been discussing today is that Israel itself is a very interesting case of extreme modernization in technological terms, but demodernization in terms of identity and political ideas. Uh, Well, because uh, the idea of having an ethnic state is something which cannot be considered a modern idea. In fact, modernity was that you identify with the state not based on ethnic principles. You don't identify with your tribe or with your uh, ethnic group. You identify with the state as it is, or in other words, the state of all its citizens. Mm -hmm. And that certainly is not the case in Israel today that uh, in fact, even officials openly say that the state belongs not to its citizens, but rather to uh, the, the Jewish people around the world. Uh, and this by itself, this national or tribal identification is a very anti-modern uh, idea. Uh, so in that sense, the Zionist movement itself uh, was the vanguard of this trend, a very early vanguard. And the fact that today Israel is a model for many right-wing groups in Europe um, uh, also suggests that uh, the Israel example is very, very interesting in the sense that it combines tremendous uh, technological modernity with political demodernization. Sounds like a fascinating project. Uh, Professor Yaakov Rabingin, thank you for uh, being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Take care and good luck with your future work. Thank you. All the best to you.